Kaposha is going to be preaching today, and if you don't know who he is, he is our seminary student at Master Seminary in California. He has one more year after this year, right? And he'll be done, and he'll be back amongst us, and we're looking forward to that. But from time to time, when he comes back from the holidays, I have him come and preach God's Word. This morning, he's going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today, so if you'd like to take your Bibles and turn there, now you can. And he's here for the, him and his wife, Emma, are here for the Thanksgiving holidays, and they're heading back to uh, Southern California, suffering for the Lord there in that weather <laughs> while we're here in uh, New Jersey. All right, so uh, let's uh, just uh, prepare ourselves for the Word of God. Then right after he's done preaching, we have two baptisms that we're going to witness the testimony of uh, two young men who've come to know the Lord as their Savior. All right, now we have light coming into the congregation. So, Dave, why don't you come preach to us? Of course, it is really good to be with you all again today as part of this holiday weekend. Let's pray and then hear from God and his word. Our great God, your word is so sweet, so precious, yet it is so serious also. Lord, we have a wonderful word to look at today, but it is also a sobering word. So God, I pray that you would give me ability to speak it. I pray, Spirit, that you would work in the hearts of those who hear it. Convict where conviction is needed. Encourage, even save God. I pray that you would do this for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I just don't think I can forgive him. She doesn't deserve to be forgiven. I'll forgive, but I won't forget. You ever found yourself saying or thinking statements such as these? Certainly they're common in our society. Our modern American culture really doesn't understand the concept of true forgiveness. Refusing to forgive, seeking vengeance are almost exalted as virtues today. At the very least, inability to forgive is treated as normal. Even the inevitable result of experiencing some great harm, betrayal, or trauma. My friends, in response to this, I feel burdened this morning to remind you of a crucial biblical truth, and it's this. Those who do not practice forgiveness as a lifestyle have not been forgiven by God. Let me say that again another way. If you find that you are not able to exercise both frequent and full forgiveness with others, even those who sin against you in the worst ways, it is probably because you do not know God and have not been forgiven by him. Do those statements sound shocking to you? They really shouldn't be, because this is plainly evident in the Bible, especially the New Testament. It's really just another application of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this truth only follows logically when you understand the wonderful news of salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, I'd like to take, take you to one New Testament passage on forgiveness. It's listed on the screen, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Please turn there. Page 978 in the Pew Bible. I hope you will have a copy of the scriptures in front of you. I want you to see these words yourself. This is not my word. This is God's word. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. We're going to read through this passage, and we're going to, I'm going to explain it. But let me give you a word of background before we get to that. This passage is from the book of Matthew, one of the four gospels. That is, books, one of the four books that specifically records the life and teaching of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew's gospel is unique among the four gospels as it has an emphasis on the coming kingdom of God. Matthew 18 represents the part of Jesus' teaching to his disciples about how to live in a time when God's kingdom is delayed. 
and you must wait for it. The discourse of Matthew 18 starts with a foundational truth. If you'll just glance back a page over to Matthew 18, 1 to 6, you'll see this foundational truth. Jesus explains that true disciples of his, if they want to get into the kingdom of God, they must become like humble children. Pride, understand, will surely keep you away from heaven. It will keep you away from salvation and it will keep you away from God's kingdom. Only those who are transformed, converted, Jesus says, into humble, dependent, trusting, and obedient children will know God's mercy and see God's salvation. This position as children will manifest in the lifestyle of God's people. The rest of Matthew 18 shows us how. You can explore the implications on your own, but one of those is the one we'll be talking about today. The final section of this discourse in Matthew 18 is verses 21 to 35, where Jesus shows that one implication of being a humble, transformed child of God has to do with forgiveness. This section is often entitled The Parable of the Unmerciful Servant. It's a famous parable, and it's engaging as it is instructive. It is in this parable that we find profound teaching on forgiveness both in how man needs God's forgiveness and how men need to forgive their fellow men. A few more notes before we work through the text verse by verse. If you're in our section now, you'll notice the word forgive appears in verse 21. We all have a concept of what forgive means, what forgiveness is, but we would be helped to have a biblical recentering and fuller understanding of what forgiveness actually is. Central to this term in the text, and central to the idea of forgiveness, is the idea of release. When you forgive, you are releasing someone from legal or moral obligations or consequences. For example, a company might forgive a debt and thereby release the debtor from any obligation of repayment or compensation. Or a president, He might forgive or pardon a convicted criminal, releasing that criminal from any punishment and allowing that person to be reintegrated into the society. Therefore, when you forgive another person, you are fundamentally releasing that person. What does that mean? When forgiveness, you do acknowledge a certain act, behavior, attitude, series of acts to be evil and to be sin against you and sin against God. You nevertheless extend mercy to that person for what he has done. You then release that person from any indebtedness his act or behavior would have obligated. There will be no punishment. There will be no penance. Nothing will be required before reconciliation can proceed. You relinquish the right to hold that person's sin against him. In practical terms, this means, as my professor at seminary and biblical counselor, Dr. John Street, explains, in practical terms, this means you will not remind that person of his sin unless it would be absolutely necessary for you to do so for his good. It also means you will not mention it to anyone else unless, again, it would be absolutely necessary for you to do so for his good. And you will not allow your mind to dwell on that wrong done to you. All of that is part of forgiveness. Now, this kind of forgiveness happens in two places. It happens in the heart, and it happens in your relationship. Before a person even comes to ask you for forgiveness, you need to have a forgiving heart. You need to be ready to forgive that person. What does that mean? Well, that means that you've already given given this offense to God. You acknowledge that God is in total control. You acknowledge to God that you trust him, you trust his wisdom, you trust his goodness. You know that he'll support you even under the greatest hurts and betrayals. And you trust God in such a way that you will not seek revenge for what this person has done. You will leave all vengeance to God. That's having a forgiving heart. You are called to do that by God. But heart forgiveness does not reconcile the relationship. There still needs to be relational forgiveness. 
Because you see, sin breaks fellowship between two parties, between two people. But forgiveness restores fellowship. Thus, relational forgiveness only takes place after the sinning person seeks it. And he seeks it by confessing his sin to be what it is. I have willfully and terribly sinned against you and against God. He also expresses repentance, a true turning away from his sin, both in his heart and in his actions. And he asks for merciful release from the sin debt. This is what results in relational forgiveness. God has called us to both. Heart forgiveness, forgive them from your heart, but then as the person seeks reconciliation through repentance, you forgive them in the relationship. In Matthew 18, 12 to 20, there's an even further aspect to this because we might say, oh, all right, I'll just wait till he comes and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. God actually tells you to go and help that person come to you. Entreat them to come and ask for forgiveness, to seek reconciliation. Both the one who was wronged and the one who wronged are to help the other in reconciliation. In each of these actions, we actually perfect, we emulate the perfect example of forgiveness who is God. God, amazingly, entreats those who have sinned against him to come and be forgiven. He doesn't just sit back and wait. If he did, none of us would ever come. He entreats us to come. This is because God's heart is already ready to forgive and restore. For example, Isaiah 65.2, God says, Isaiah 65.2, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. He's ready. His heart is forgiving. But true forgiveness can only be established when a person comes in repentance and with a plea for mercy. And this we also see in God and also in Isaiah. Isaiah 30 verse 15 Isaiah 30, verse 15 says, For thus says the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, He has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. And God's forgiveness is full. It does not leave any lingering bitterness or price to pay. And this too is evident, even in Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, God says, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will remember your sins no more. When God forgives, God has full reconciliation and fellowship with those who repent. We can see this evidently in the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15. You know that the father represents God in the parable. The son represents the sinner. The repentant son is instantly exalted into full honor and privilege as a beloved son. There's no time to work off some debt. There's no time to sit in the corner. He has full inheritance as a son. Now we, when we are sinned against in certain ways, we have a hard time going back to the way things were. Have a hard time seeing full reconciliation. And indeed, in some extreme cases, it will take time to rebuild trust, rebuild a relationship over certain betrayals. But mark this, true forgiveness wants and is genuinely committed to pursuing a relationship with that other person. They say, you know what? I don't feel like we're back to where we, where we were, but because I forgive you, I will work toward that. I will work to greater fellowship and reconciliation with you. That's what true forgiveness does. But all of this raises an important question. How often should I practice such forgiveness with someone? I mean, that's pretty intense. This is exactly Peter's question at the beginning of our text. So look at it. We're going to actually not read the text all together. We're going to read it through in parts as we explain it. But look at verse 21. We see the first question in our text. Peter, Jesus' disciple, we see him ask a question. Then Peter came and said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter's asking, is there some limit limit to forgiving someone? And if so, what is that limit? Peter offers the seemingly generous answer of up to seven times. 
And I say generous because some Jewish teachers at that time taught that one should forgive a person no more than three times. And they got this from a strained reading of Amos 1 to 2, where God says, for three sins and for, and for four, I will not relent in my judgment of a certain nation. And they're like, see, God only forgives three times. Therefore, we should only forgive three times. They also reasoned that offering any more forgiveness than three would only encourage people to sin. They know there's more forgiveness, they won't feel bad about sinning. So going as high as seven, Peter going as high as seven, seemed like a pretty pious suggestion. I would forgive you more times than most, up to seven times. But after that, you're dead to me. But our Lord gives a surprising response to Peter in verse 22. Let's look at that now. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Or literally, 70 times seven times. And that either means 77 or 490 times. Now you hear that and you may be saying to yourself, oh, is Jesus just saying the limit is further out than Peter thought? No, 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 you've got to do more times than 7. 77 and that's the limit. Or 490 and that's the limit. No, no, that's not the idea. Here the parable that we're going to read is going to show us that. Rather, Jesus is making a point by contrast. You think 7 times is generous? Try 10 times that. Try 70 times that. The point is, Forgiveness has no limit. No matter how many times a person comes to you in repentance seeking forgiveness, you are called by God to forgive him. We see the same idea in Luke 17. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says that even if your brother brother sins against you seven times a day, if he repents each time, you forgive him each time. Now, this is only possible if you have a humble, childlike heart that loves and trusts God and is therefore ready to forgive. And this is real forgiveness. This is not you gritting your teeth and saying, I forgive you. No. Verse 35 of our passage is going to emphasize that real forgiveness is from the heart. It's not just words. It's not just formal. It's from the heart. You fully forgive someone and release them from any debt that they have to you by their sin. Now that's a high and holy standard. How can anyone do it? Immediately, repeatedly, and fully forgive anyone for any sin when they repent. Even the worst offenses and betrayals. Does that sound impossible to you? If so... And my friend, you need to become acquainted with God's forgiveness. Which is what Jesus is going to help you with by presenting this parable. In the verses that follow, 23 to 35, Jesus will show us three reasons why God's children, the forgiven, always forgive others. This parable is going to show us, Jesus will show us in this parable, three reasons why God's children, who are the forgiven, always forgive others. And I'll give you these reasons as we go along in the text. Our first reason is because God has forgiven his children's, our great debt. We see this in verses 23 to 27, so let's read that. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay... His Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Notice the phrase, kingdom of heaven, at the beginning of verse 23. Jesus is going to tell us something in this parable about how God's coming kingdom operates. Which means that knowing it and understanding it will be key to your entering into that kingdom. Your receiving salvation. The situation presented by this parable comparison is of a lord or king calling his slaves to account for their debts to him. Now, these slaves are clearly no ordinary slaves, since you may notice in the text, they are allowed the use of vast amounts of wealth. They can own property, and they can also be sold along with their families into slavery. 
For this reason, some have suggested here that the picture of this parable is evocative of an oriental king, like a great king of Persia or Babylon, who is settling accounts with his vice ministers or his vice governors, who were servants to the king, and in a sense, they were even slaves. Regardless, certainly the situation of these slaves is unusual. But for one slave, it is particularly extraordinary. Notice verse 24 says that one slave was brought before the king who owes the king 10,000 talents. You say, that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know what a talent is. Well, let me explain. Anyone in the original audience listening to Jesus would have gasped at this amount because it is a staggering debt. You see, a talent was a large unit of money. One talent was worth about 6,000 denarii. And the denarius, that's common silver coin, it was the wage that the average manual labor could expect to earn in a day. Day's work, you get one denarius. This slave, by owing 10,000 talents, owed the equivalent of 60 million days of labor. To underline the crushing nature of this debt, there were not even 10,000 talents in circulation as money in the ancient world. Could you imagine having a debt that was greater than the amount of money in circulation today? One source I looked at estimates there's approximately $80 trillion in circulation in the world right now. Can you imagine having a personal debt that is greater than that? That's what this slave has. Thus, those listening to Jesus would have thought of this debt in only one way. Unpayable. There is no way that any slave could ever pay off such a debt. It also leads to two important implications. This slave, first of all, must be the worst money manager of all time. How could a person manage to rack up a debt this extreme? It's like he was trying to mismanage the king's money. But this slave is only a figure. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. So who does this first indebted slave represent? You. You and me. You are the slave whose sin debt is so vast and unpayable that it can never be repaid. Your mismanagement is the disobedience of your life. You were born a sinner, and everything you do is sin. It is evil before God. I mean, think of all the sin in your life, the lies you've said, the mean words you've uttered, the lustful thoughts you've had, the worries you've expressed, the complaints you've said, hateful thoughts, hateful deeds. And these are just the beginning of your sins. Fundamentally, apart from Christ, you do not love God with all your heart. And that is the greatest commandment. You don't serve him as he deserves. You do not honor him as he deserves. Even the supposedly good things you do are tainted by selfishness and pride and are therefore an offense to a holy God. You have an incredible debt that you owe God. And like this slave, you cannot pay it. But there's another implication from this detail of this slave's debt, and that's about the king. The slave's an incredible mismanager of money, but the king is incredibly, almost irresponsibly generous. You might wonder at the ineptness of this slave to recruit such a debt, but we have to ask, why did the king let him get away with it? Either the king is similarly inept and irresponsible, or this king is so good, powerful, and patient that he not only desires to, but can't afford to be patient with this terrible slave, even up to a debt of 10,000 talents. At any time before this moment in the text, the king could have said, what are you doing, slave? Are you trying to ruin me? It's time to get rid of you. Get some compensation. But the king hasn't done that. Instead, he has said, in essence, I won't call him to account yet. I won't call him to judgment yet. I'll give him a little more time. Now, the king is also a figure in this parable. Who's the king? 
king is God. God is so great, good, and powerful that he has decided to be patient with your incredible sin debt before him. He was not obligated to be patient with you or give you more time, but he has decided to because he's loving, because he's merciful. But even though you have not served God nor honored him as you ought, God has not judged you as you deserve. He's given you more time. But what have you done with the time that he's given you? You haven't used the time to make amends. You've only used it to rack up more debt. How do you think God will react to you now? Seeing how your sin debt is so great, should you not run to God for mercy? Look now what happens next in this parable. The king crunches the numbers and discovers what would have been immediately obvious. This slave is not able to repay the king. And seeing how there's no prospect of future repayment, the king decides to get at least a few pennies worth by selling this slave, or if it's indeed a minister, by enslaving that minister, selling him along with his family and possessions. This, by the way, would hardly make a dent in the debt but at least the sale would allow the king to see some justice after so much financial unfaithfulness and mismanagement. But something stops the king from this course. Look at verse 26. The slave humiliates himself before the king. He throws himself to the ground. He's prostrate with his face on the floor, and he asks the king for mercy. Have patience with me, the slave says, and I will repay you everything. Now, in one sense, this promise is ludicrous. More patience to you, O most unworthy of slaves? More patience so that you can rack up more debt using my money? The slave even promises that he will pay back everything. I'm sure some of the original listeners probably laughed when they heard that line. You think you're going to pay back 10,000 talents? That debt is unpayable. Besides, your your track record is not exactly in your favor. It's not like the debt has been going down over time. It's only been getting worse. Yet how many people, maybe even some of you, are essentially saying the same thing to God? God, give me more time. I'll make things right with you. I'll do more good works. I'll say more prayers. I'll I'll do more Bible reading. I'll go to church more. I'll give more. God, I'll pay off this debt, I promise. Don't be such a fool. You cannot pay off your debt by your works. You're like this slave. Your attempts to repay the debt are only increasing the debt. Eventually, God's patience with you and your repayment plan is going to run out. And you also will be sold, not to satisfy the debt, but to satisfy God's justice. To whom or to what will you be sold? To the eternal punishment of hell. Not to work off your debt. That can't be repaid, not even through eternal suffering, but to satisfy God's holiness and justice. With such a future, will you continue to insist on repaying God for your sins? Why not instead ask God for mercy? Because look at what happens to this slave. Verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Don't misunderstand. The master didn't spare the slave because the master appreciated the slave's desire to repay the debt. Actually, the king probably totally ignored that senseless promise. Rather, the king felt compassion for this foolish, desperate debtor and decided to show him mercy. He forgave the slave's debt, totally released him from it. No work, no penance, no compensation required. The Lord merely decided to show mercy to his slave when the slave asked for it. What incredible forgiveness for such an incredible debt to such an undeserving debtor. But how? Any bank or creditor who forgave such a massive debt would be instantly ruined. That money's got to come from somewhere. You cannot forgive that much and not be destroyed by the financial consequences. So how is it bringing the figure full circle here, how is it that God is able to absorb the consequences of his forgiveness towards sinners like you? Well, it's not without great cost. We've already been singing about this today. 
Because God is holy and just, he is not able, as some imagine, to just sweep sin under the rug and say, no biggie, just forget about it. No, sin is a big deal to God. If he let even one sin, one evil act, one evil word or thought go unpunished, he would fail to be good. He would fail to be holy. He would fail to be just. He would contradict himself as God. All sin needs repayment. If not by the debtor, then by, then by some creditor on the debtor's behalf. But who could possibly intercede to pay your great debt? There's only one. God himself. Again, God didn't need to do this, but because he is that good and because he is forgiving, God determined to totally pay off the sin debt of his children. And this he did by sending his son Jesus, God in the flesh. The son of God came into the world to live a perfectly righteous life and die a death on the cross, suffering the wrath of God. Hell itself, the very price your sin deserves. Though the debt of sin is unpayable for any man, It can be paid by someone whose wealth, so to speak, is infinite. Such is God's case. Only God can pay off man's sin once and for all. Jesus did this for all who believe in him at the cross. Jesus not only paid the sin debt of all sinners who believe in him, but he then credited to each one of them his own righteousness. They were as righteous as the Son of God on earth. Jesus Double exchange, paying for sin, giving his righteousness, crediting his righteousness. It was accepted by the Father. And that's proven in the accounts given in the Gospels. Jesus, at the end of his time on the cross, said, It is finished. The debt is paid. And when Jesus rose from the grave three days later, that was the Father's confirmation of an accepted sacrifice. I accept your payment. Therefore, rise from the dead. That's why we often sing, That him, Jesus paid it all. But how does one become one of God's forgiven children? You want your debt repaid by the only one who can pay it? You must do what anyone ought to do when seeking forgiveness. Come humbly, just like a little child, and ask God for mercy. Confess to God that he is who he says he is, and that your sin is what he says it is. Repent of your sin. Turn away from it. Turn away from your old life. Not just what you did, but what you thought, what you valued. Ask God for mercy toward you. Not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what God has done and who he is. Embrace Jesus Christ as your saving substitute and master of your life. Follow him no matter the cost. Don't misunderstand. This thing I'm describing here, it's not a work. This is just a breakdown of what the Bible says, in short, faith or belief. All people are saved only by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Which is why the apostles say in Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Simple as that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you will repent and believe, you have God's promise that you will enter God's kingdom. Not just you might or you hope, you will. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God can't do anything else but forgive when you repent. What a wonder that our great sin debt like that of this slave, 10,000 talents, can be forgiven in this way. Should we not echo the words of King David in Psalm 32, 1? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessed man. What a happy man. You can be forgiven today because God's heart is ready to forgive. God is calling you, even in this passage, even in this message, God is calling you to be forgiven. He's entreating you. So won't you be forgiven today? Why would you ignore such a generous offer? We see the first reason God's children forgive others. It's because God has forgiven their great debt, the children's great debt. 
And this parable, if we stopped right here, this would already be an amazing story, especially because of what it figures, what it tells us about God and his forgiveness toward his children. But there's more to it. Very instructive second reason for our forgiving others, made by contrast. This is the second reason in my outline. Reason two, why do God's children, the forgiven, always forgive others? Because God demands that we forgive lesser debts. They are lesser debts. We see this in verses 28 to 30. Let's read that now. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Just when you thought the story couldn't get any more surprising, it takes a shocking turn. You'd think that the reaction to having your 10,000 talent debt forgiven would be celebration, adoration of the king, telling others the good news that they can have their debts forgiven, or something along those lines. But not for this slave. Unthinkably, what he does next, according to the story, is that he goes to collect a debt from a fellow slave. Our reaction as listeners ought to be, huh? Consider the size of this lesser debt. 100 denarii. Now, this is no amount to sneeze at. It's a little more than three months' wages. Imagine if someone owed you three months' wages of your job or of your husband's job. That's no chump change. But what is that in comparison to 10,000 talents? I like this one calculation I found. This second debt compared to the first, is approximately 0.00001% or one hundredth, one hundred thousandth of the original debt. But consider this first slave's approach to his fellow slave. He seizes him and chokes him. What? Can't you remind someone about a debt without resorting to bodily violence? especially after you yourself have received life-giving good news? And then hear what he says. Pay back what you owe. Or more literally, pay back if you owe. What? Why does he say if? Well, it's like he's quoting a proverb to this other slave. Those who owe have to pay back. That's just the law of the world, so pay up. No exceptions. The irony is almost painful. You're going to quote this as a proverb even after what just happened to you? Anyone listening to this story has to think, what is wrong with this slave? Why is he acting like this? What happened to the humble, desperate, grateful slave of just a few moments ago? Now we have a proud, greedy, selfish, self-righteous, despicable debt collector. And it only gets worse. Because notice how his fellow slave responds. Verse 29, So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? It's almost the exact same thing the first slave did and said to his Lord. Moreover, the second slave doesn't even react as he might have. He might have fought back against the first slave. Get off me! He might have told him off. He might have invoked the aid of others. Get this crazy man off me! Restrain that first slave. He doesn't do any of these things. He doesn't fight back. He humbles himself before the first slave, despite being mistreated by him, and he confesses his genuine debt and need for mercy. You know what? I do need to pay you back. I can't, though. Please, be patient. Have mercy. Surely it's such a humble response, so reminiscent of the first slave's own response to the king. First slave would have mercy, right? That is so small by comparison. His fellow slave has humbled himself, asked for mercy. Why not give mercy? Why not forgive? My brothers and sisters, is it not the same with our own sins against one another? In this fallen world, it is inevitable inevitable that people will sin against us. 
some in small ways, some in great ways, some by people of the world, some by people in the church, even our closest family and friends. The debts that others incur with us are substantial. They can't just be brushed aside. Yet what are they in comparison with what we have been forgiven? Who we are in Christ should put us in a constant state of happy celebration. We have been forgiven. We will not be sold into judgment. Why fuss about a smaller debt? We've been forgiven by the king. Indeed, to forgive is to walk in the very footsteps of God. By forgiving you, magnify his mercy and his forgiveness by demonstrating it to others. If you're forgiven, don't you want to exalt God by, or exalt God for his great character and forgiveness? Christians ought to be known for their readiness to forgive others because they were so readily forgiven by God. Christians ought to be known for the fullness of their forgiveness of others because of the full forgiveness they received from God. But sadly, this often is not the case. Too many people, professing Christians included, imitate the shocking behavior of the slave slave scene in verse 30. He was not willing to forgive. He was not even willing to have patience and extend the loan. Rather, he had his fellow slave locked up until the debt should be repaid. Now, if you've read through this story before, you probably had a big question mark here. Um, How can the second slave pay off his debt if he's thrown in prison? It's a great question. What's the answer? He can't. He can't. That's why debtors' prisons are so cruel. That's why they're illegal in this country. That's why they weren't even known in the Roman world at that time. If you throw a debtor in chains, you've doomed them. You've doomed them to death or to lifelong imprisonment because he can't do the work that will enable him to pay off the debt. It's not like he can run a business from the dungeon. It's not like the jailers are going to pay him to do work. In such a case, the debtor's only hope would be for his friends and family to scrape together enough money to pay the debt and get the man out. But with the man in prison, who often was a primary moneymaker for the family, how will the family be able to do that? They've got to support themselves. They won't have enough money to free him also. What if he doesn't have any family or friends who are willing or able to intercede? By throwing him in prison, the first slave has cruelly damned his fellow slave into a kind of living hell. He will suffer the debt. He will suffer for the debt, but he will never be able to repay it. And all this from the one who moments earlier was forgiven 10,000 talents. What an outrage. What an injustice. What disgusting ingratitude and selfishness. And how many people, Christians included, do exactly the same thing? Despite your own forgiveness, you won't forgive others. You constantly nurse the hurts you've received. You remind others about how much they've hurt you and how much they owe you. But you're never willing to release them from the bondage of the prison you've constructed for them. You want them to suffer. And as they get frustrated at your lack of forgiveness and maybe even act out towards you, you only dig in your heels even more and become that much more committed to not forgiving them. You want to put people into a type of unforgiveness hell to satisfy your twisted sense of justice, justice warped by your own pride. Have others genuinely sinned against you? They have. Do they need to genuinely repent and seek forgiveness? They do. But is your heart ready to forgive because of how ready God's heart was to forgive you? Are you like the father of the prodigal, going back to Luke 15, who at the very first sign of repentance, when his son was still a long way off, he ran to him, put his arms around him, because he was so desirous to see him reconciled. Is that your attitude? Yes, as I said, it may take time to rebuild relationships in certain extreme cases. But won't you go forward in the rebuilding process together by totally releasing your fellow slave, one who's just like you, from the wrong that he or she has done to you? 
won't you do to others what you would have them do to you? Indeed, as what has been done for you, if you know Christ. I hope you'll take this seriously. Because if you say, I'm sorry, but I just can't forgive him. If you take the path of the first slave in this parable, then beware, because his outcome will be yours. Why do God's children forgive? They've been forgiven a great debt. They only have lesser debts to, re- to, to forgive. And finally, God will not forgive the unforgiving. We see this in verses 31 to 35. Look at those with me. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Really, this part of the story is not that unexpected. Surely the first slave did not expect that his cruel actions would go unreported, did he? You can't grab one of the king's slaves, have him thrown in jail, and then just hope the king won't notice. Word got back to the king, so the king summoned the first slave. May I say that if you are nursing unforgiveness in your heart, then you should also be afraid because word of it is also getting back to God. He hates to see that kind of injustice, especially when he so kindly offers forgiveness to all who repent. Will you really impugn the goodness of God when you insist that you should not forgive those that God is willing to forgive? Your king, God, will eventually summon you and deal with you as your behavior deserves, just like the king does here. And look at what this king does with the slave. The master calls the slave what he is. Wicked. He reproves the slave for the same reason that any of us would who have listened to the story. This slave did not show the same mercy to his fellow slave that his master had shown him. Only a wicked slave, unaffected, unappreciative of his master's mercy, could do such a thing. So what does the master do? He revokes the pardon granted to the first slave. He saddles him again with a 10,000 talent debt. At this point, you're going to say, wait a second, how can the king nullify his previously expressed forgiveness? Doesn't that make that forgiveness false? And if this is talking about God, then you're saying that God can revoke salvation? The people can lose it? Well, here you need to remember a basic aspect of parables. Parables are all about the main details, not the side details. There are too many verses in the Bible that clarify that those who are truly saved by God cannot be lost, not even by their own sins. Nevertheless, there are other verses in the Bible that make it clear that those who are truly saved will be changed into lovers of God, lovers of good, lovers of righteousness. And so they are new creations. They live lives in which they persevere in obedience to God until the end. Not perfect, but that is the characterization of their life. This is also true when it comes to forgiveness. This is why the passage says what it does. This is why other passages like Matthew 6, 14 and 15 say, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now back to our passage in Matthew 18. The Lord and King, this passage, decides to use the same standard the first slave used on his fellow slave back on the first slave. If you won't forgive your fellow slave, I won't forgive you. Forget about that. You're determined to leave your fellow slave in unforgiveness hell? Then I'll do the same to you. That's why verse 34 says, the king handed the first slave over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. We asked the same question we did before. How will this first slave be able to repay the debt while in prison and while under torture? The answer is the same. It won't. He can't. He couldn't have paid it before, even when he wasn't in prison. It's too much. It was unpayable. But now, after showing such wickedness and ingratitude, the king is determined to exact a measure of justice by torturing the slave for the slave's great wickedness. In so doing, the king chose to do to the slave as the slave sought to do to others. Now, friends, brothers and sisters, Hear the sober warning of Christ in verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you 
if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Make no mistake, the price of unforgiveness is eternal torment in hell. What a fearful thing it is to be eternally unforgiven by God. If the unforgiveness of man is torture, how much more the unforgiveness of God? Especially after his generous way of forgiveness was so freely given and freely repudiated. So dear friends, consider what a great and sobering word our Lord Christ has given us today through this passage. Christ's main message is clear. God's children, as the forgiven, always forgive others. Why? Well, Jesus has shown us in this striking parable. First, God has forgiven their great debt. Second, God demands that they forgive lesser debts. And third, God will not forgive the unforgiving. So then, consider your response to Christ's word. Have you sought the forgiveness of God simply on the basis of faith in Christ? For those who know God's forgiveness, do you forgive others, both in your heart and in your relationships? To all I say, along with the authors of Scripture, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another and know God's great blessing. Let's pray. Lord, this is a great word, but it is a sobering word. In a sense, this is very hard and this is very easy. For those who love sin and cling to the flesh, it will be very hard. They cannot do it. For those who have asked you for mercy, who have repented, who have experienced your great forgiveness, this should be easy. In a sense, this should be easy. Because what is 100 denarii compared to 10,000 talents? Lord, I pray that you would be so moved, be so gracious as to make your people forgiving just as you are forgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.